Welcome to the KLOS 15 Reverse Podcast. This is the third installment as we spotlight the impact 95.5 KLOS has had on radio rock and roll and the community it has served for 50 years. I'm your host, Rita Wound, joined again by technical wizard Stu Herrera. Our spotlight for this episode is a show that originated on KLOS in 1981 and became an institution in the industry, Rockline. Our special guests are two people who served as producers for that show, Mark Felsat and Greg Jernigan. Welcome, gentlemen, to the KLOS 50 in Reverse podcast. Hi, Rita. That is Mark Felsat talking. Hello, Rita. And that's Greg. Great to be here. Thank you so much for doing this. By the way, I started as an intern at KLOS in 1977. Is that right? Yes. 1977. I started here in uh, 1983, and you were already working like various different things, you know. I was an old-timer by the time you got here. Yeah. They're like, wow, I got six years in. How about you? I started on Rockline in 84. I wanted to meet the Scorpions, and I hung out outside the studio. And then I um, eventually became the gopher on the show. And then after Mark and Brian came to town and uh, the phone screener left, uh, CW, Mark hired me. And so I would always have always given Mark the credit for getting me into radio. Greg, Greg did it the right way. He just come out, hang out, <laughs> and, made it, and fi- found a way to make himself useful yeah. and likable at the same time. I sat on the curb, and the Scorpions took me on the road for three days. Oh, my God. Where'd you go? Did you go to uh, Pack Amp? Was that around it the It was time? Pack Amp, the oh, Forum. Was, did you go to the— uh, they're, they're still investigating that story, I oh, think. Oh, yeah. was that? Was that That it? was 84, Love It First Thing Tour. Yeah, the with Bon Jovi bon opening Jovi. down at right. Pack Amp. I was at that bon show. So for the first I had to hop a barbed wire I, fence to get in there. <laughs> I, found, I wanted to meet them, and I came to KLOS, and they said it's not done here. It's done at another studio. Bert and Ernie's or something like that. And then I went and got caught climbing over a wall, <laughs> discovered where they did Rockline. This is before paparazzi and all that, really. And uh, I was good enough to just keep it quiet and not talk about it, got autographs and uh, sat on the curb until the, And I'd heard that's how Prince got his first break, is wow. he sat on the curb outside a recording studio. That's killer. And eventually Mark gave me a break. Wow. wow. And Mark, you uh, were here at KLOS and... And originally the show had B. Mitchell Reed. Beamer was the host from May when it debuted till October of 81. And in the middle of that, uh, he had some some health problems. And uh, I mean, it's an infamous story, but he had a heart attack literally right at the end of a show. And he walked, was at KLOS? No, no, at the at Rockline Rock studio. Oh my God, he, Nils Lofgren was the guest. And we were coming back from the last commercial break. Nils had his guitar because he was probably going to play something anyways in the last segment. And as the bumper music was playing, uh, Beamer stood up, moved the microphone out of the way, walked past Nils and said, Nils, can you play something? And went out in the hallway and collapsed. Oh, my God. And Nils just starts playing to a room by himself, not knowing what went on. Wow. Paramedics, I mean, they got the paramedics there quickly, and after a couple minutes, we got somebody just to go in, and while Nils was playing, to start reading the credits and say goodnight, you know? Wow. And uh, it was wild. And uh, I think he only did about six shows or something like that, didn't he? On Rockline? Who, Beamer? Beamer. No, he did more than that. Okay. He did more than that, but it was October when they finally... Or maybe it was six months, not six shows. Yeah, six Six months, months. yeah. Yeah. When they brought Bob in, and... uh, you know, it was, it was it was the right move. And Bob was just such the perfect host. Well, he was a natural. 
And he knew – I mean the key to that show was transition, to go from the caller to your own question, the follow-up question, you know, when it was – when you were done with the caller. You just – you had to have the right feel for the pace of the show. And Bob was such a natural at it. And so everybody who came and did the show, they felt so comfortable because Bob was comfortable. And, you know, it was it was easy for for them. That was the most, you know, you make the guests comfortable. They'll want to come back. Yeah. You know? No, so you were at KLOS, so you got the job uh, at Rockline. That started in 1981. Were you working with Beamer also? Oh, yeah. I, okay, so you were already the there. show. They did one show. And then I got a call from Tommy Hedges, our PD, who said, hey, um, you interested in screening phone calls on this new show, Rockline? Because whoever they were using for the first show had, was somebody who came with the studio. Mm. But they didn't real, they knew how to screen calls, but they didn't think about rock bands. So, and because I had been working with Michael Benner on the talk show at KLOS screening phone calls, uh, I went down to the second show and jumped in for half a show and then me and this other guy split the time there for the next few months and then finally they got rid of him and so technically the second screener on the show but very cool and then greg you got your job as a gopher to start off with i did i was the gopher on the show so that was actually a very fun time because i saw a lot of crazy things was first there, last to leave every night. Uh, and then, like I said, when Mark and Brian took off and got to town, Mark gave me the break, and then I became the screener for a number of years, then moved on to technical director. But when he started, he was at the front door where everybody right. came in. So all the craziness that would go on downstairs at the front door that the rest of us who worked on the show were oblivious to, he, he got firsthand witness of, you know, the crazies showing up with stuff to get autographed or demanding to be let in the building. Um, it, was, it, was, it was nuts, and he got, he got firsthand uh, viewing for all of that. None of us, I mean, half the stories he has from watching what happened those early years I know nothing about because we were upstairs getting right. ready for the show. So, doing that, excellent. Um, so, B. Mitchell Reed knew Bob Coburn, and did he kind of just hand off the show to him? Uh, well, wasn't wasn't that easy? But, no, but he seemed like the perfect fit for it. I'm sure it wasn't. He was. Um, wasn't a very for them too. It wasn't a very smooth transition. You know, because even though Beamer was older and had, you know, health issues, you know, he didn't want to let it go. And, you know, and then it's the guy following him on the air at the same radio station. So it was, I think it was a little icy for a while. But, you know, it was a change that had to be made for the future of the radio show. So. And how long were you with Rockline, Mark? Till 19, till um, July of 1992. Okay. And when did you start, Greg? I started in '84 until 2014. I actually was on. I worked wow. for the show for 30 years. Wow! Does, is there audio? Uh, I mean, we don't have it right now, but is there? There's got to be uh, recordings of those B. Mitchell Reed shows. Oh yeah, right? yeah. I have uh, every, you know, every show. Really? From back, I mean, every show has been 
digitized, archived. Uh, so yeah. there's there's a record of every show. Yeah, we, yeah Jimmy Rash, who was the longtime of producer, course. I mean engineer of the show, yeah. he, he and I, he went through and uh, we digitized everything. So we've got them all. Super. We've cool. got we've got some good little chestnuts that we've you know right. going to play tonight. Who was the first um, guest ever uh, that Beamer you know brought onto Rockline? Uh, the first guest. Um, I want to say it was Joe Walsh and Deep Purple. Maybe no, no, it was Joe Walsh, and it was either. Robbie Krieger from The Doors. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I think Frank Zappa was an early guest. I think the Doobie Brothers were an early guest. They were. Um, A lot of half shows at that time. A lot of split shows. Oh, so first half. What was it? A one hour or two? It was a ninety minute show. Ninety minute show. Forty five of one hour. Oh my god! So you'd have two super duper stars. Well, or or you would be. It's funny because you'd go back and see Kiss uh would do a and the Stray Cats or something like that would do a show split. Wow! Because neither one of them, you know, were either that big at the time or they were still breaking out. I remember the first time you two were on. They were the second half of a show, and the first half was Elton John. Oh my god! Really? I think it was Elton John for the first half and U2 for the second half, you know. Because at, at that time, you know, Elton John on rock radio right. was starting to yeah. not be not as... The, yeah, were those the, the Little Genie and those, those You know, days? those some of those new songs, you know, people didn't want to play. So it was like, oh, well, well, you know, we'll do half with you. And and then U2 was on from New York to did the second was for the War album. Wow. Yeah, that was... Uh, awesome. I think Stu found uh, something from uh, Bob's first official show on Rockline. Yeah, and there's two ways to play this. Should I play the un- well? I'll just play. It. Is that who, Rod who Stewart? Was, who was the guest? It was Rod Stewart. Yeah. And the introduction that he gives Rod Stewart is massive. <laughs> and I created an edit of it just just for tonight. You know, with a kind of like dovetailed. You know, the the beginning and the end of it. But I think actually we should just play the whole thing. Here we go. Okay. And now, from our studios in Hollywood, it's the host of Rockline, Bob Coburn. All right, good evening to you. I am Bob Coburn, the new host of Rockline. We have a great show for you tonight with a very, very special guest, Rod Stewart, in the studio this evening. We also have Alan Freeman with London Calling, a live report of what's happening on the rock scene across the Atlantic, and, of course, your telephone calls. You can call Rockline toll-free at 800 421 or collect from within California, 213-520. Tonight we'll be tracing the musical history of one of rock's most distinctive vocal stylists. His whiskey voice tenor has intertwined itself into the very fabric of contemporary society. Though Rod Stewart has been releasing solo albums since the performances, there's a new LP ready for uh, release, Tonight I'm Yours. I'd like to welcome vocalist extraordinaire Rod Stewart. Well, I'm pleased I turned up after that introduction. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to say that's going to top the introduction? That was absolutely amazing. It's all uh, nearly true, anyway. We heard a little taste of Maggie May, and I I think I'm going to have to hear that again, and I'm sure the people listening to Rockline would like to also. It's about ten years since Maggie May came out now, right? Ten years. It was a hit in February... 71. And this is probably still one of your biggest albums, Every Picture Tells a Story. Uh, I'm not too sure about that, but that's beside the point. I think probably Night on the Town's a bit bigger, and Blondes was bigger. And Blondes was probably bigger, too. But I'm not complaining about that. I bet. Let's listen to Maggie May on Rock. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm sorry, that was the... uh God, even even version. to think about the, at the time, Maggie May was only yeah. ten yeah, years old and at the, the time. Yeah, wow. they're going out. Wow, it's been ten whole years since Maggie May came out. Like, I, I will say, the great thing about Bob was he could write, oh. and he he you just gave him the research. He wrote the intros. He wrote 
he wrote 25 to 30 questions for himself in case the phone callers had an off night. Mm. So he was always prepared with great questions. And, man, I got to tell you, that talent is hard to replace and and he did and we all in especially when bob you know in 2003 bob bought the show and that's when he made me producer and we were so prepared for every show and bob was so spot on but we would each come in with our own questions not to feed the callers but just to prove to each other and show you know the screeners to show us they were ready and they had done their research and then we always had a go-to and bob and i had a had a look we just had a look and it was just a connection to to know exactly where I was going and where he was going, yeah. and you know I know Mark had that too. But well, I he, just pushed the intercom and talked in his ear. Well, I did too. But and and you know at that time you know even you know the internet wasn't around at that time, so you're you're on an old green screen and you're typing on a program. You hope it doesn't fail that he's reading, and you know it's not you're not really it's hard to communicate in beyond just simple text. Right. You can't you know you can't get a feeling across. And, uh, yeah, Bob was very, very prepared. And that's the thing with the Rockline, too. Uh, when it started, there wasn't an Internet, so you couldn't go, you know, uh, find out your favorite band's favorite color if you wanted to do that or, you know, why they wrote that song. Uh, what are your beliefs uh, for the longevity why do you think it lasted so long and had such an impact, Mark? Well, it was a unique concept to begin with. That you're going to be live Every Monday night. And when the show started, um, satellite technology was next to non-existent for commercial radio stations. The only radio stations that you could feed programming to that they could download on a satellite were national public radio stations. Mm. And so for the first two years of the show's existence, the only way you could carry the show was contacting your local NPR station in your town and say – would you download this show for us and we'll pay to have broadcast lines put in from your station to our station? And that's how you got the show. And it wasn't until ABC came along and um, took over distribution and then gave every commercial radio station satellite dishes. And we, we went from like 40 stations to 120 stations in like two years wow. because now everybody could get it. So that was one of the things. Bob's ability to be as great as he was every week was uh, also um, part and part uh, the reason for the longevity. And there was nothing else like it because we weren't where we are today. And that was really one of the ways that people could have communication with bands and bands could have communication back, but in a very comfortable, controlled setting that made it easy for them. The bands and the fans... When those people hung up the phone and when that band left the studio, it wasn't some like Bells and Whistles morning show where they didn't know, they, you know, they had some scripted questions to ask. You walked away from the show as, the, as a fan or um, an artist going, that was a great interview. And that, that's, yeah. and that's yeah. what he taught, it, that's what Mark taught me, that's what Bob taught me. And then also when ISDN technologies came along, that really expanded it even more and we moved to two nights a week. The, the key too is, is we didn't want it to be a fluff show wanted to have bands really talk about stuff that maybe they weren't comfortable talking about. And, you know, sometimes managers and record people right. got mad, but it was the phone callers, you know. Yeah. We, that was our safety net. They hey, were never, it's the callers. They, yeah, they were never told the questions. You know, the callers wanted to know, you know. It wasn't us pressing the issue. And 
deal with it. You know, this is your opportunity to tell your side. That was my of the question. Story. So the, those managers and PR guys couldn't come in and say, "Okay, this topic's off limits." And well, this they, topic, they, they tried. tried to, they right? could. They, they tried did a little. That. They tried to. I remember one artist that, you know, they they were very particular on her first couple records that we didn't talk about her sexuality, and then a couple albums later, it was all they wanted to talk about. So it just it went both ways. Hmm. I could guess you that. They went both ways. <laughs> ah, yeah, see what you did I guess there. not. Huh? <laughs> One thing that always uh, struck me about Bob was just how much he loved listening to music. I remember going out to, I think it was, he had the red Mercedes, and he had this disc changer in the back, and he had like 10 different CDs going at the time, I mean, that he was listening to. And it's like, how do you do that? He goes, I listen, try to listen to five or 10 CDs a week. Mm-hmm. Just to keep up on things, and he was always into uh, to new music, mm-hmm. and and rediscovering the great stuff about the old songs. I mean, he taught me so much about music. As a host, you have to try to relate to the bands and as musicians, and understand what they liked as as players and who they listened to. And you know, if they start talking about, well, you know, we were big Howlin' Wolf fans and Muddy Water mm-hmm. fans. You know, your host better not go, oh, God, I've never really listened to, you know, exactly. So that was, it really wasn't a job for him because he liked doing that. But that's part of what made him so good is he was such a fan of music. He always talked about he had this gigantic vinyl collection and he had moved a couple times and I hadn't seen it because vinyl, it was really about CDs then. But he also talked about having 20,000 CDs. And when he, uh, his wife put together his, uh, Lynette put together his CD room after he passed, he had 20,000 CDs. Dude, I, I was there. The record parlor, the when, they, when they sold his record collection, yeah. it was amazing how eclectic. And the guy was, he was definitely a student. Yeah, yeah. Uh, back in the day when you could buy a used album for a buck fifty yeah. in mint condition. Yeah, exactly. I couldn't believe the exactly the uh, worth of the uh, vinyl today. Yeah. Yeah. It's a whole different Damn it. Um let's talk about some of the uh, the memorable shows. I'm Rita Wild along with Stu Herrera, it's KLOS fifty in reverse with Greg Jernigan. Hello Greg. Hello again. And Mark Falsat. Hello Rita. Producers of uh, Rockline for many a year and I'd say all of us pretty decent friends with, with Bob and got to know him and respect him as an individual and and just for the artist he was um hmm. most memorable shows well I, I the first one that always pops in my head is george harrison okay yeah that's and you know george had come out of you know nothingness and d- d- does cloud nine you know with jeff lynn producing yeah. and jeff lynn had been away from the scene right. you know elo wasn't doing anything and George agreed to do the show, and we wanted to see if he would play. And, of course, the label's like, don't even ask. It'll never happen. Forget about it. And I said, well, listen, we show up with some guitars. Anything can happen. <laughs> I remember going to you know, Cloud 9, he was holding a, a guitar in his hand. Yeah. And I remember taking that to uh, Westwood Music and talking to the owner, and I said, this guitar, you got this guitar? He goes, oh, it's a 55. I have a 56. I need to rent it. And then I told him, I said, I got George Harrison. A Martin. You know, and it was a Martin? No, no. It was a Gretsch. Was it? I thought oh. it was a Martin. We rent, The second guitar we rented oh, was a Martin. Body, a hollow body electric, right? It, yes. Right. And um, so I had two great guitars. And the, and the guy told me, he said, if, if George walks in the room and sees these two guitars, <laughs> if one of them is not 
in his hands in 15 seconds, then he, he won't play. So <laughs> him and Jeff get there. First off, they were being they were being chased by fans. So, you know, they had to, there was a little all that going. And he was a little, you know, unsure of himself when he got there, you know, but then had a few beers and he was fine. And in 10 seconds, him and Jeff Lynn had those guitars in their hands. And, oh, and I just thought somehow this is going to happen tonight. And, you know, we... We made a deal with him, you know. We were like, you know, we'd love for you to play. And then he was like, well, I brought this CD that I'd love for you to play because if people want to know what inspires me, this is what I listen to. And it was a Bulgarian choir. Wow. You know, and he, and he even said, he goes, I don't expect you to play a whole song. But if you play some so people can understand what I listen to for inspiration— and you know i'm like done done deal <laughs> yeah and eventually we 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 even he was still teetering though and then my boss said if you play you you can keep the guitars whoa what was huh? that, who was that howie gilman, howie gilman. howard gilman did it so he's, you you can keep the guitars the guitar. so wow the show goes Both on of them? Both of them, yeah. Now, so now, so now the show starts. It's a two-hour special edition. It's not ninety minutes. It's two hours. And we thought, you know what? Let's not even broach the subject until he's comfortable doing the show and taking calls. Maybe we'll wait till like the hour mark, and then maybe we'll ask. But all during the commercial breaks, him and and Jeff Lynn sat in with him, but didn't say anything. But all during the commercial breaks, him and Jeff started playing songs to each other. So. You could hear sometimes when we came back from commercial breaks, you could hear the tail end of of George and Jeff strumming. Wow! You know, mm-hmm. and before I, I was going to have a caller ask them to play, I was going to plant it before I could do that. Uh, I'll never forget this girl, April from Edmonton. Her name and city etched in my brain forever. Said, "Well, before I get to my question, it sounds like George, you have a guitar there. Are you going to play something?" <laughs> And I'm just like, oh, my God. Uh, thanks, and, and George went on to sort of tell the story. He said, well, you know, I, me and the owner are trying to strike a deal. And and then he's like, you know, I, I would. But, you know, I want, you know, all I ask is if they would play something from this CD I brought. And I'm pushing into Bob's headphones. Tell him yes. Tell him yes. You know? <laughs> and 20 seconds later, George, off he went. He started playing a version of something. He played wow. a bit of Here Comes the Sun. He played uh, uh, some Bob Dylan and some Burr. I mean, we, wow. we, we got like half scraps of about seven different songs in that second hour that were amazing. Absolutely Amazing. We got to come back. You got to come back. Yeah. You with with some of that, man. Oh wow. my God! That some of the the, the, that, that. the the funny thing about that show as a highlight and a low light being the gopher was the low light was there was a I, one of my jobs was to hang a vinyl rock line banner that everyone took pictures in front of, and like Mark said, George, you know, relaxed, got a little loosened up when he got there, and at the end of the show, we were all taking a picture, and he leaned into the banner too far, and the banner fell on him, oh, and, no. and basically draped him. Oh, so, no. And Howie Gilman looked at me, and I was like, I'm dead. Uh, 
Let's see. So you have know somebody who almost nailed Jackson Brown. That's yeah. me. And I, now somebody who almost got George Harrison. Wow. And then, need a trifecta here. <laughs> but what then happened? Trend happened after that is they stuck around after the show. And well, this is the, the after show was we, for four hours. I think Mark and I. And well, a it, it wasn't people, that long, was it? No, but it was. Seemed like it. It seemed like it. And there was we there was a room at the room. studio. It was a jingle house. There was a couple of, couches, oh, yeah. and there was a piano in there, and you could. They sort of just went in there for privacy, okay? But they took their guitars with them. And George and Jeff Lynn proceeded to perform, like is the best word, for, for oh there was God. a couple record company people, and, and as the staff was done walking in there, you know, George would start a bird song, <laughs> and him and Jeff, and then Jeff, of course, would start a Beatles song, because he was one right. of the biggest Beatles fans ever. Right. And, you know, we're, we're in there, and, I mean, when I walked in, the only place for me to, if I, to sit was on the edge of the couch next to George Harrison, <laughs> you know. Oh, bummer. And <laughs> I hate you. And, There's and, a picture <laughs> from Billboard of that night. And, oh, my but, God. But I, I, me and the uh, engineer, one of the engineers for the studio there, we, like, eyeballed each other. And through our eye contact, yeah. I was asking, is there any way you can quietly leave the room and sneak a microphone back in the room? Right. And he was eyeballing me to say next to impossible, <sighs> but we were both on the same wavelength. Like we, mean, we have to have those? something for the wow, you know, to tell people this actually happened. So there was one picture that uh, that came out in Billboard magazine. For me, the funny thing too at the end was when I took him to the car. I was the one that took him downstairs, and you know, uh, people were waiting outside still, even after those couple hours for George. I was like George, you know, arm in arm. I'll get you to the car. Oh you, you, I'm gonna, you know, we're we're, with we're locked in elbows. Right. We get outside, and being British, he went to the wrong side of the car. Oh, of course. <laughs> and, we, and we got separated, oh, and then no. I had to catch him again and push people away and get him in the car. And wow. thanks, mate. And like t- but and you know, were... having having Beatles on was always a big yeah, deal. We had Paul huge. McCartney and a couple times, and Paul was like the complete opposite. Paul would dro- drive himself. Everybody's outside looking for the limo. Uh-huh. And all of a sudden, McCartney in a convertible comes cruising by everybody, pulls into a parking spot, (laughs) walked into the building, and nobody outside saw that it was him. And he was great. He would, you know, he would send somebody down with and say, go collect all their albums and bring them to me. And as the show goes on, I'll sign them, you know. Smart man. That way I can. That was the first show I go for. Wow. Oh, really? really? Yeah, it was Paul McCartney. He came out swinging. Wow. <laughs> now, was George on just the one time? While I was there. I don't know if he did it a second time after I was gone. No, I don't think he did. But I do, and I don't, and I, I have the guitar pick he gave me, the oh, Cloud Nine guitar God. pick. And then I found another guitar pick that's odd. It was a, it was a different named Wilbury. Mm-hmm. And after a little research, I realized it was Gary Moore's. Gary uh, Moore's. Yeah, because he played a little bit. He played on record. one Wilbury really? song. Yeah. He did? Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. No way. I never knew that. She's my baby my... from yeah, uh, from yeah. volume three. Wow. Yeah. So this was uh, having him on Rockline with uh, Jeff Lynn was pre-Wilbury's then. or It was or... before. They had already started, I think. Wow. But there was no mention of it right. yet. Because his album was out and Tom was, Petty was working on Full Moon Fever. I mean, all of this sort of happened within like an 18-month period. It was like, oh, my God, look what, look at all got created. It was, it was pretty intense. Um, just briefly, after, because I do some work with um, Tom Petty, 
um, after the Rockline show, George and Jeff went over to Tom Petty's house uh. with their guitars and were telling Tom what, what happened. And they were, they were up to like the, the, the sun came up at six o'clock in the morning and just drinking beer and playing tunes and you know we're thinking of another uh, rock line show right now that took place in atlanta in 1984 <laughs> oh yeah were you got now how did that work technically where were you guys were you there too no uh bob went to atlanta so right. bob was with van halen uh, in the same room in atlanta and the rest of us and and my boss uh cindy tolan who was for that show was the producer so I was the associate producer. We were back in L.A. where all the music came from, where all the uh, and all we did was feed them everything from there. Uh -huh. And we we just, I mean, we were trying to visualize what <laughs> what was going on there. It was well, insane. Well, we have that show. We, we it was pretty tough to figure out like what snippet to pull from it because you could literally pull the waveform of the whole show up and drop the playhead anywhere, and it just sounds like a riot. The yes. whole time. So uh, here's a little bit of that, and I figured out a way around our technical issue. So here's a, a little snippet from the Van Halen Show in 1984. Welcome, welcome, welcome. It's Van Halen live on the air. I'm David Lee Roth. I'm Michael Anthony. And good noon, afternoon, noon from Alex. Thank you. Together we are Van Halen. When I flew out from Los Angeles, I had five marriage proposals for David that I was supposed to pass on, and also about 20 questions that it seems like everybody wanted to know the same thing. What the hell is on the inside of the album jacket, the little round things on the, on the inside it's, it's sleeve? It's called a record. It's <laughs> Van Halen, Alex Van Halen representing the United States going for the full point. After one inning, Live. Alex won. The rest of us nothing. What, what is that, seriously? Well, actually what it is is something purely designed to confuse you, Bob. <laughs> A job well done. <laughs> that's, that's not too difficult. <laughs> like you said, Alex, timing is of the essence. <laughs> We're going to play a song from 1984. Right, by so, so they never found out. <laughs> well, you got to remember, Roth shows up with it with a boombox. Okay, where that background oh, music is, because okay. that that's, that's him orchestrating part okay. of what's going on uh, the air. Uh, so they've got their music going on in the background to to like give them the energy. And there were there were. You know, I remember at one point on the air, you just go, Bob's talking, he goes, oh my, and she took her clothes off just now. <laughs> I mean, there were strippers in the studio, there was, um, it was radio debauchery, but as you can hear, it was a lot a of fun, a lot of fun. Yeah. yeah. And plus that tour was just crazy anyway, the 1984 tour. Yeah. I remember when they played the Forum, yeah. you know, you walk in and there's these amplifiers that are like 18 feet high. I mean, it was all show. But uh, I, I was, I think, working mornings at the time, so I stayed at the hotel across the street at the Forum, and so did, like, the entire road so the crew. Oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> so there was no sleep, no sleep, no sleep. Oh, um, a lot of biopics are really the rage these days. Uh, Queen, obviously. Uh, I know that Brian May was on the show. Did Freddie Mercury ever do the show? We never got Freddie. We always had Brian and Roger. Roger. And because, I'm trying to think. You know, there was a period where... You know, Queen was not right. welcomed by American radio, you know, because they really got into the European sort of disco. Right. Starting with Hot Space. And, but, yeah. but when they, yeah. they sort of came back, I think they, when they signed with Hollywood Records, 
they started making some rock again, and we we had them on. But I think already Freddie had AIDS by that time, at least the beginning stages. And you know they, you know these guys were terrific. They they were gracious. They were so appreciative of doing the show. They protected Freddie Mm. as as best as any two guys could. But they were they were terrific. We we just grew to love Brian and Roger. They were. They were wonderful. To the deal other with. biopic, Motley Crue, just came out. Dirt. Were they ever on the show? Oh, uh, we have similar shows than like the Van Halen. I, I, I'm trying to think if I was there when Motley Crue, if I had them on. I must have had them on. I don't remember. Seems them. like they you, were on a well, lot. I guess well, you could forget it they, too. Yeah. They were on a lot, especially toward like um, like I can tell you a couple stories. For instance, and I. One Vince one night passed. We had him on, and um, they were in Texas. Vince basically passed out on the mixing board. (laughs) (laughs) On the the middle mixing board, not you know, like a little Mackie mixer they had there, and took us off the air. And Mick Mars had to in the room with Bob there too. No, they were in Texas. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And we were knocked off the air. And then when we got (laughs) back on the air, it was just Mick Mars, and. I remember telling Mick, yeah, and I told Mick Mars this when they came on for Saints of Los Angeles, yeah. and I was t- reliving. We were reliving the story, and I, I told him, I said, I never thought I'd say thank God for Mick Mars. <laughs> and then there was another one where, at a point where uh, Vince had caused a number of episodes on the show, and Bob had it would gotten you know tired of it, to be honest. Yeah. And Vince came on the show, and he was he was ready to ready to go at it, you know, just feisty. And I, it was one of those times you watch someone go through the whole uh, drunken state of I love, I hate you, man, to the end of I love, I love you, man, <laughs> at the end of the show. And I don't know if he even made it through that one either. But, um, wow. yeah, we had some very challenging shows with them. And the other guys were very professional all the time. And so was, so was Vince for the, for the most part. But it was very much like the Van Halen and that's uh, Bob's skills as a diplomat God. there but going back to the Queen those yeah. two guys and especially Brian May absolutely adored Bob yeah mm-hmm. and when Brian became the astrophysic and put out that book that he did he sent Bob a, you know one of the first mm-hmm. copies of it wow. a, a couple of things I remember uh, there was that one show with Bill Clinton and Al Gore I mean that Bob, was after my time that was that was just so cool because it was rock the vote and it just was really getting people involved with it and it was like such a kind of a, a left turn but it was like the right turn it was and great it was in, Col- it was in a, at a, can- a university in Colorado even those that were there whoever was involved with the show had to get a background check clearance wow. mm-hmm. Bono dialed uh, called into the show did he really? yeah Bono called in yeah, of course he did. Yes. Yeah. And yeah, that was a big show. It was an epic picture of Bob sitting there with those two. That's great. I uh, have to ask you uh, one story that Bob told me, and I don't know if it can really be repeated or not, but <laughs> Guns and Roses. Well, yes, it can be repeated. Um, Guns and Roses were on, and we had um, Duff, Slash, and um, Izzy, the three of them. And they were on the second half of a show. The first half was Robin Trower, and he was on a remote somewhere. So they were in L.A., and uh, there must have been 50 people who came down, and everybody's partying or whatever. So we put, we put them on, and the three of them talked over each other for 45 minutes. I mean, literally nothing good came out of that show. And then with about... Ten minutes before, before we went to the last commercial break, uh, 
um, all of a sudden uh, you you hear Slash turn and go, does anybody have a uh, a brown bag? Oh, and, no. and he pushes the microphone away. Oh, and Duff has a oh, no. Duff has a, a bottle in a brown bag. And so he gives Slash the brown bag. And I'm watching as Slash turns away from the microphone and this pukes is... into the brown bag. Now, because he pushed the mic away, mm-hmm. it is really far off in the background. Because I remember listening back to the tape going, oh, you can't really hear it, yeah. you know. And so I'll never forget, and I'll... Because somebody from the record company had said that, you know, these guys were cleaning their act. They weren't drinking and all that. And um, I remember yelling at the record guy going, "Um, so uh, not drinking, eh? (laughs) And he goes, Slash had a bad artichoke for lunch. (laughs) And I go, well, you know, a bad artichoke and a fifth of whiskey would probably make you puke, you know. (laughs) So what happened is we went to commercial. We came back and we, we had 10 minutes left in the show. We played Paradise City, which was five and a half to six, and we literally said goodnight at five minutes to ten. And that's what caught wind that something was up. And people, you know, I mean, I was getting phone calls the next morning about all these stories about Slash threw up all over our walls and we've banned Guns N' Roses for life. And Yeah, the story I heard was that he barfed, that he puked on Bob. <laughs> he, he didn't puke on Bob. No, yeah. no, no. The, the, the image of what might have happened was far better than mm. what actually – in fact, we never sent a tape out of the show to anybody <laughs> wow. because it would never match what you thought happened. Uh. But word got back to Axel about what happened, and and you know Bob had said some negative things about the night, and we ended up, I think later that year we did a special edition with just Axel, mm. and I'll never forget Axel when he sat down and his opening thing was he goes, or maybe he saved it for later. He said, you know Bob, I just got to tell you when I got here, I wanted to beat you up for the way you treated those. And then he goes, but you have been nothing but gracious to me. I've had like the best time. I mean, you know, raved about how great it was, but he came in with this chip, chip on his on shoulder, shoulder. and uh, ended up having a really good time. So, um, But again, everything was hearsay at the time. There wasn't a lot of internet. And I, I will say, and I've, I am tight with that crew and that, that gang uh, and spent some time with them in Italy this summer. Um, Slash and Duff and uh, you know Axel wasn't on a whole lot after that, but Slash and Duff uh, were incredibly gracious to Rockline throughout the years, yeah. and especially w- what Slash did for his memorial. He recorded, a, he helped us to record a, a bit for the memorial video we did. He gave a signed guitar that we auctioned off at the um, at the. Um, Canyon Ride Club, there. the ride for Bob. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe, sadly, Frank bought that guitar, and I'm only going to assume that it's lost now. Oh, Frank from the morning show. Oh, from the really? morning show, Frank. Oh. Probably, yeah, right. but sadly, yeah. So, but yeah, uh, Slash and his manager went out, out of the, you know, out, they were out of this world, gracious for us. And, and not only that, but proceeding in all the solo records they did, Slash's, um, Slash's Snake Pit, and all his solo work, Duff solo work. Bob was uh, a big fan of everything that those guys did. Absolutely, he? love those guys. Yeah, yeah. It was good but, rock and roll. But Slash, throughout all the years, still got asked about that night at Rockline <laughs> because there was um, 
a few months afterwards in like Cree Magazine, one of the magazines, right. there was a shot of Slash and Duff on like a hotel room beds, passed out. <laughs> but the corner table in the middle of the two beds was the Rockline coffee mugs. Oh, my nice. God. And, and the wow. pad of paper. And the pad of paper that said Rockline and Global Satellite oh Network on God. the side. Yeah. And he, for, I mean, years later, he said, I wish people would stop asking me about that night. But it was, you know. That's what infamy is. That's you can't pay for that. That's right. That's We're right. running uh, against the clock here for our time-wise, but I wanted to talk a little bit uh, about what both of you have been doing uh, since Rockline. And Greg, you were really instrumental when uh, in Bob's passing and putting together the memorial, and then coming in here and doing some of the Rockline replay stuff. Mm -hmm. So, uh, what have you been doing since? So, I always worked Rockline as a second job, basically for a number of years. I worked at Capitol Records during the day. I had gotten the job there because I had to meet, I followed Rob Halford back to his hotel wow. one night after Rockline and met Bruce Dickinson and I was an absolute metalhead and Iron Maiden fan and ended up getting that job there and I ran, I was the mothership EMIs, I built their first computer network in the US. So I was doing IT, so I'm, I do cybersecurity now and I manage a local heavy metal band called the Mendenhall Experiment which is all about raising disability awareness because the kid has cerebral palsy. And, uh, they, is this the one that you made the movie about? And we just made a movie about that that's coming out. It's been running awards everywhere What's called Mind Over it? Matter. Mind Over Matter. Yeah. Okay. So, there we go. And there it is Great. right there. And there it is there right you right go. Thank you, Stu. Yeah. There's the CD. Oh, oh, Greg, cool. obviously way smarter than uh, the I rest of tell. us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I built their first computer yeah, network. Wow. Okay. And how about you? You uh, low life? Are you doing, <laughs> doing anything? Yeah, Mark. Well, let's see. In 2001, 2002, I started working for Little Steven when he was launching his radio show, uh, The Underground Garage, and I worked f for him for 10 years. And then in 2004, on a part-time basis, I started working with Tom Petty when he launched a show on uh, XM Satellite at the, time, at the time called Tom Petty's Buried Treasure, and did that. And then in 2015, they gave him his own 24-7 channel, and so I've been working on Tom Petty Radio uh, ever since. And you host uh, the morning show. Too, I do the morning show there. I do uh, special features. I, I produce all the other guest DJ shows and stuff like that. And uh, it's a labor of love, yeah. especially well, now. Well, it's, it's interesting because of, you know, I mean, both, you know, working with Bob so closely and, you know, working with Tom so closely. I mean, two huge instrumental figures in our lives that, you know, have passed on. And, and you guys are really carrying the torch. I want to thank you very much. Uh, Greg Jernigan, thank you again. Thank you for having, a, having me, Rita. And uh, Mark Felsant, nice to see you again. Maybe out on an Angel game one of these years. Oh, Mike Trout. Yes. Mike Trout! Thank you, Rita. It's always a pleasure. Money well spent. And Stu, Stu, thank you. It's always Absolutely. great to hang out with Stu, Stu and Rita. Oh, yeah. awesome, We're man. way overdue. We still have that little... Um... Oh, yeah. Uh, this was in, in 1986 when I think Tim Kelly was the PD of the station. And I was doing mornings until we waited to get somebody else along with Chuck Moshantz. And this inter, uh, internet company or computer company sent us over to Hawaii. It was like a senior way to Hawaii contest. So we were broadcasting live. Uh, Bob did the middays. He was broadcasting live. Gino and I think Steve Downs was there also broadcasting. I mean the whole air staff was in whole Hawaii. Air oh and, and mind you, you know, I had the morning show. You know, 6 a.m. here is 3 a.m. Yes. <laughs> Basically, so, you had overnights. Oh, but it was, you know, and, and with Joe, who had never slept, you know, so you can imagine what that was. But uh, when we were signing off the broadcast, um, 
listener Doug sent this in, and it just meant so much to me because uh, Joe was uh, Bob was giving some thank yous, and Joe wanted to interrupt the show and thank Bob. Ninety-five point five KLOS. That's John Cafferty with the Beaver Brown Band on the dark side from the soundtrack of the film Eddie and the Cruisers, and also Creedence Clearwater Revival with "Someday Never Comes." Joe Walsh missed you on the boat cruise last night. That was yeah. a lot of fun. Well, my monster went to sleep. <laughs> I got a quick thank you too. What's that? I mean this sincerely. Thanks for doing Rock Line. Oh, sure. Period. Regardless of who the guest is. No, well, thanks. Thanks for doing that. Yeah. That's how I make my living. <laughs> I know, but it, it's so nice not to talk to some idiot. And I'm speaking for all us artists. Oh, it's well, thanks, nice man. to have some. In, you're only as good as the questions well, when thanks. you're an artist. And I mean that. That's a little corny, but I thought I'd throw that in. Oh, shucks. We'll be right back. There you go. All right. We'll have another uh, KLOS 50 in reverse podcast next month. I'm not going to say who it is, but you definitely have to tune in. I'm Rita Wild. Till next time. Thank you, Stu. Thank See? you, Mark. Thank you, Thanks, Greg. Rita. Thanks, Rita. Thanks, Stu. 15 reverse. <laughs>